With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. And good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program. I know that it's been a weird one that we're starting at a very strange time. We've had some really bad technical issues. In fact, uh, we actually had to restart the stream three or four times. So uh, I promise this is the one that at least right now we are still on the air. So we're going to continue that. I, I don't know if it's the dark cyber overlords at YouTube and Facebook that are actually responsible for that. I kind of doubt it. It just seems like it's more something on our end. But nonetheless, we're working on that. We're trying to get it rectified and we are here with you today. And that's what really matters because we have a lot to get to. So I did want to mention that Alabama is right now considering becoming a sanctuary state, not for illegal immigration, which is normally what we attribute sanctuary state to. When we say the words sanctuary state, normally what we're talking about is a state that does not prosecute illegal immigrants. And so they can tend to come to that state and, and more or less be safe from deportation or having to go to court or any of that kind of stuff. Now, what we're talking about here is a sanctuary state for the Second Amendment, which I actually think is a, a really interesting way to take it. There's a bill right now that was passed by the Senate and Senator Gerald Allen, I believe the number is Senate Bill, oh, wait, I have it here, Senate Bill 358, and this was passed on Thursday, so a week ago, not yesterday, a week ago, Thursday. So that is going on right now, and there's a, a lot that this bill would do that I think would wind up working out really well. You can check out this summary that Alabama Political Reporter did, and you can see there they said SB 358 would make it a Class C misdemeanor for a state or local official to enforce any federal gun law or executive order that, quote, regulates the ownership, use, or possession of firearms, ammunition, or firearm accessories. The penalty could be up to 90 days in jail or a fine of $5,000. A second offense would be a Class B misdemeanor and bring the sentence of up to six months in jail and or a fine of up to $7,000. So, there's a lot of debate on this, as you can imagine, from the Senate and from Democrats and in, in both the House and the Senate. They've been talking about this particular one quite a bit. Now, one of the things that is kind of unique about our law, and I won't go so far as to say that no other state has a law like this, because they might. They, they, there's a very good chance that there is another state that has something similar to this. But at least from the ones that I am personally familiar with, the red states that are a sanctuary area for the Second Amendment, at least based on what I'm seeing, and I could be wrong, but most of the ones that I've seen do not actually carry with it criminal penalties. They are more of a guideline, and they just kind of go out and say, well, you don't really have to follow them, and you're not going to be held accountable, at least by us, if you don't enforce those gun laws. 
Think of it kind of similar as to what happened with Roy Moore and the reason he got ejected from the Supreme Court the second time. You remember because what he did was, it's not really an executive order, but that's essentially what it was. As the chief jurist in the state of Alabama, he essentially said to county clerks and, and local judges, yeah, you don't, you don't have to issue gay marriage licenses. You can just kind of ignore the court precedent in Obergefield, which whether you agree or disagree with that, this is just the closest thing that I can think of off the top of my head that relates to this. It's not that he was saying you absolutely, you're going to be in trouble if you do it. He's just saying you don't have to if you don't want to. That's what most state sanctuary laws are like for the Second Amendment, the ones that have been passed so far. This one is different because it actually carries with it criminal penalty if you do enforce them, which makes it much stronger, gives it more teeth, and, and it not only says to law enforcement, no, you don't have to enforce it if you don't want to. It says, oh, if you do enforce it, we're coming after you. Now, the real question in this becomes, is there a judge, even at the local level, that is going to look at a law enforcement officer that was trying to enforce federal gun laws and convict him? I, I don't know. And that's a good question to ask, and I wish I had a better answer, but I don't. Judges tend to, and, and I think that there's some reason for this, and, and in some ways this is very good. Jurists tend to have such a high minded idea about jurisprudence and stare decisis when it comes to precedent being set. And so because of that, I do think that they are going to, especially if the Supreme Court decides to rule on one of these executive orders or this law, that they are probably going to wind up siding with that. And I don't know that you would see them convict a local sheriff or a deputy or even an entire police department that tries to enforce a law like this. I, I don't know. Now, they are in Alabama, and it would be local, So and, and because of this law being in place, there might be some that would. Uh, I'm not saying there are none that would, but I'm saying I, I, I kind of feel like, and I could be wrong, you're going to get some judges, especially in larger cities, like Birmingham, like Montgomery, like Mobile, that are going to side against the state law and, and try to defer up, as it were, to the federal laws that might be passed that this bill would affect. I don't know that for sure, but that would be my guess, at least based on what I understand, because this might actually negate some current standing laws. And that is interesting, too, because the way that this bill is is, is worded, and based on what I saw, maybe Senator Allen, and he's welcome to come on the program to talk about this if he wants, one thing that I think could be an issue here is it's worded somewhat vaguely, and because it is worded vaguely, it doesn't say, like, one of the laws, I want to say it was South Carolina's law that said, after this date in 2021, that at that point, any laws passed from then on, you would not be able to enforce as a law enforcement officer. A law enforcement officer, potentially, based on the wording of this law, because it is vague and it, has, it doesn't have that time provision in it, it could actually cause a law enforcement officer to be arrested and charged and fined based on doing something that is already part of his job, that it already has a, a federal gun control legislation that is out there that he's enforcing that is already on the books as we speak or, or was on the books long before Joe Biden took office. And so the fact that this bill is reactionary, now personally, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And the reason that I say that is I believe that all gun control at the federal level is unconstitutional. At the state, it may not be. At the state, states have a little bit more leniency, they, they have a little more sovereignty, and they're not directly affected 
by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. They are not specifically prohibited by the Bill of Rights. Um, a good example of that is that at the time of our founding, there were several states that had state churches. This is the official church of our state. Pennsylvania was the Quakers, for example. Uh, you could be the official state of the Catholic Church if you wanted to. And there were four states that, that continued to have that because they were not bound by the Bill of Rights. I think that states actually have the ability to enact a little bit more gun control than the federal government does, but all of it at the federal level is unconstitutional. I mean, it, you couldn't word it more clearly if you wanted to. Um, shall not be infringed, that's, that's pretty self-explanatory. When it says shall not be infringed, I believe it means shall not be infringed. Now, if the states want to do something, that's up to them. But it's interesting that this law could actually negate some standing state law and might actually cause a sheriff or a deputy to be charged with something if he continues to do something that he has been doing for a long time in compliance with the federal law. I, I think it would be better if, if they only were concerned with doing it at the state line. And here's why. Good example. I actually supported Colorado becoming a sanctuary state for marijuana. Now, does that mean I'm in favor of legalizing marijuana in the state of Alabama? No, doesn't mean that at all. But as the Federalist Papers point out, the states are supposed to be laboratories of liberty. In other words, the states are supposed to be able to do things on their own that aren't necessarily done at the federal level, and that other states can look to them and see whether it worked out, whether it didn't, whether it worked with their state, whether it might not be a good reason to believe that just because it worked in their state, it would work in our state because our state has some different concerns. All of that stuff is part of the equation and part of federalism. We're supposed to be experimenting with liberty in the states. And with 50 of us with the ability to do that, we're going to come to pretty good conclusions if we're allowed to do that. Unfortunately, for the entirety of my lifetime and for several decades before I was born, we have fallen into this trap of thinking that everything has to be federalized and life in each state needs to look pretty much exactly the same as the life in every other state. And substance control is part of it. It's a good example. For example, if you know your American history, you remember that in the early, early 20th century, we had proration. You could not consume alcohol. It was illegal. And how did they do that? They had a constitutional amendment because the Constitution did not grant the Fed power to do that. And so because of that, they had to have a Constitution. They couldn't just make federal law. They had to put in an amendment that alcohol is illegal in the United States. And then when they saw that that didn't work out the way that they thought it would, they had to also have a constitutional amendment to get that law removed. So why is it all of a sudden they decided with marijuana, I mean, that is a control substance, that's a drug, right? Just like alcohol. Uh, yeah, we can just pass federal law and, and make it illegal in all 50 states. Yeah, we can do that. No, you can't. No, you can't. Because the Constitution does not grant the Fed that power. So even though I don't necessarily like the fact that Colorado decided to go its own way and decide, no, in our state, we're going to allow our citizens to smoke marijuana. I think, honestly, there's merits on both sides of that debate. I've, I've heard some good cases for the reason it should be legalized, none of which because they like marijuana, just because of liberty arguments and, and doing that sort of on libertarian grounds. But nonetheless, whether or not I think that that would be a good idea, and I, I kind of I, I kind of lean more on the not making it legal, but I, I understand the arguments on both sides. That's a, that's a debate that is worth having, but we can't even have that debate as long as it is illegal on the federal level. 
So I, I actually applauded Cal Colorado for just going off the rails and saying, you know what, we don't think that it should be allowed. That's not a, a power that the federal government has. And so we're just going to decide amongst ourselves in our state, we're going to make it legal. And if the Fed wants to stop us, they can show up with the army and try. But that's really the only option they have because we're going to allow it. I've said for a long time, states need to be more like that. And I applaud the state of Alabama for trying to do exactly that. The state of Alabama is saying, look, we're, we're a gun state. People like their guns here. And so if anybody in Washington tries to pass laws that would curtail that, we're just going to say, okay, you want to enforce it? Come on down here. Call their bluff. That's what we should be doing as the United States of America. We're not the nation of America. We're the United States of America. We're united in purpose, we're united as one people, but ultimately we live differently and that's okay. That's the way our founders always intended this to go. Now, people will, of course, come back and say, Caleb, but you're very much against sanctuary cities and sanctuary states when it comes to immigration. Yes, and here's why. The Constitution clearly grants Congress that power in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. They are in charge of all things when it comes to immigration. I will say, though, that it is not incumbent upon your local sheriffs, your deputies, your state troopers, all of that. It's, you're not, it is not incumbent upon them to enforce that. They should enforce it, and I think that it, it's just a good thing for them to work with the federal authorities in that one area because it's something that is concerned to all of us. However, that's still their option. I still don't believe that local sheriffs and, and law enforcement should be compelled to enforce federal law when they're not federal agents. I think it'd be a good idea, but I don't think that they should feel compelled to do so, and I think that this is the same thing. Because they are not federal agents, local law enforcement should not feel compelled to enforce gun control regulation, especially one that specifically violates the Constitution. See, that, that's one pretty big difference that people sometimes leave out of the debate. The Second Amendment, enshrined in the Constitution, it's the second most important right guaranteed to the Constitution. Immigration, specifically something the Constitution gives the federal government not the state government, power over, and that's because federal governments should be controlling that. And so when you make yourself a sanctuary city, okay, if you don't want to enforce the federal law, that's, you know, I think that that's something that you should do, but that's ultimately your business. When they specifically inhibit or try to prevent the federal government from doing its constitutionally mandated job, that's where we start getting into some dangerous water. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of jurisdictions in the state of California and other states have done as well. And in some cases, even facilitating the crime of entering the United States of America illegally by giving them things like state-certified identification and driver's licenses and so on and so forth. And so ultimately... That is a completely different argument, but the, the underlying premise of federalism, that I am all in favor of. And ultimately, even more so than just the constitutionality of it, from a practical matter, the federal government disarming a state is not a good idea. It's a very, 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 very bad idea, and in fact, it turns federalism on its head. The idea, when the country was founded, was always for the states to be sovereign, for the state to be the most powerful entity. The federal government was only brought together to handle a few things that the states couldn't handle on their own, like running a, a nationalized, unified monetary system. In other words, printing money. It, like, for example, taking care of foreign enemies. It was just too difficult to have too many different militaries and different military structures within the states, and they decided, 
You know, we need a unified military to deal with foreign threats. When it comes to things like foreign trade or interstate commerce, all of those things legitimate functions of the federal government. And so the federal government should have the right to do that. But that's all the states wanted the Fed to do. Other than that, they wanted to be largely sovereign and autonomous. And that's the reason that we set up our federalist system the way that we did. If the Fed can decide to disarm a state, it can become tyrannical. If the Fed can just, just decide, yeah, the, the people in the state of Montana or Alabama or Georgia or, heck, uh, a northern state that doesn't have as many, New York, if they could all of a sudden just decide, we're going to disarm all the people in that state. The states at the original, I mean, this is why the Bill of Rights was written, right? It was written as a way to ensure the states, the federal government would not become tyrannical. And that was the second most important thing to that. That's why it's the second amendment. Because they understood that if you can take away a state's guns, if you can disarm a state, then the state is no longer a state. Then it is merely a territory of the federal government. And that's not good. And so, just from a practicality standpoint, the idea that the Fed could decide to disarm or control the firearms within a state is a very, very bad idea and cuts directly against the intention of our founders. But ultimately, I guess the only thing I would leave you with is that states really do need to do this more often because states have always been seen and were always intended to be a check on federal power. That was their function from the beginning, and we failed to do that really for the past 100 years. The states are not subservient to the federal government. The states are superior to the federal government. Remember, the federal government did not create the states. The states created the federal government, not the other way around. That's an important thing to remember, that the states would not have signed, signed on to something that lessened their power or influence or ability to govern themselves. That was of paramount importance to the people when they signed this country, when they signed that compact in the Constitution to be one nation with several different states. But ultimately, the states do have to be that check on federal power. Now, here would be my, my big closing thought on this. Great, I applaud all of the legislatures that made this take place. I, I hope that it winds up passing the House and getting signed into law by, by Governor Ivey. But here's the thing, and I'm going to say this when the law passes, and I'm going to say it right now. Governor Ivey, if you pass this, if you sign this, I applaud you. I think that it's a great step forward. Now do it with abortion. According to the law on the books, abortion is illegal in the state of Alabama. Can't do it. Yet for some reason, we're saying with this bill, if it winds up passing and if we wind up actually enforcing it, we're saying with this bill, no, we're not going to be bullied by the federal government. We're not going to allow the federal government to dictate to us the way that we are going to run our state, especially in areas where the Constitution specifically prohibits them from doing so. Yeah, well, you know what's more important than guns? Do you know the reason that the federal government has that provision in their Constitution? Why the Second Amendment is there? To protect life. Life is the primordial right. The first one. All your other rights come from the right to live. So Governor Ivey and the people in, in Congress here in Alabama and the Supreme Court Okay, if you do this, I applaud you. Good job. You're, you're doing your job as a state and acting as a check against the federal government. Now do it with abortion. That's the more important one. 
It'd be great to have this, but remember that guns are only there to protect life. And you can't, you're being hypocritical if you're saying we're going to protect your gun rights because they protect your life over here, but when it comes to the murder of innocent unborn children, we're just going to let that one go by the wayside. And yeah, the Fed can kind of tell us what to do on that one. Uh, heck no. That's not the way this works. If you're going to do it in this one area, then you need to do it when it comes to the issue of life. And I know that there's going to be a lot of Democrats that if they see you enforcing this law and not enforcing the abortion law, they're going to say you're hypocritical and they're right. They're going to say you care more about your guns than you do care about the lives of these kids. And they're right, if that is the criticism that crops up in the wake of this. I'm all for this. Don't get me wrong. I, I am in 100% support of this. I'm just saying, if you do support this and back it up with some teeth and stand up to the Fed on this, you can't stand up to the Fed on this one, but be like, yeah, but baby's dying in the womb. We're just going to... Uh, pass a symbolic law, but not actually try to enforce it. Uh, no, shut down some Planned Parenthoods. Shut down some abortion clinics in the state of Alabama, if that's what you're going to do. I applaud Governor Ivey for signing the anti-abortion bill into law and making it illegal in the state to do so. But the thing is, they haven't done anything to back it up. Right now, it's just a pretty law on the books that they can pat themselves on the back and feel good. Yeah, well, patting yourself on the back and feeling good about a policy is what Democrats do. Actually do it. Bring it to life. Because ultimately, if the goal is going to be preserving the rights of the American citizens and the citizens of the state of Alabama, there's one particular demographic, the unborn, that we are failing to do that on. I'm glad the law's on the books, don't get me wrong. But if we don't enforce it, what good does it do? Actually enforce the laws you have on the books. It's part of your constitutional oath of office, Governor Ivey. And for the rest of the members of Congress as well. One other thing that is going on right now and the state of Alabama is considering is a gambling bill. I'm sure that you've heard about this. Look, kind of the same thing with the marijuana that I was just talking about a second ago. It's an issue that I see the merit on the other side of the debate because ultimately, even though I don't like gambling and I think that it's actually a drag on the community around it. In other words, if you look at the, the great gambling cities of the, the United States, uh, you can look at Biloxi or Las Vegas or, any, or Atlantic City, any of the big communities built around gambling. You know what they have? Gambling and not much else. It actually acts as a dragnet on the economic development of basically everything around it, with a handful of rare exceptions. I mean, you might have some restaurants that crop up around it, but overall, this is just a really, really bad thing to base a community off of. And because of that, I, I genuinely see the argument, even though I tend to be pretty libertarian on this stuff, I see the argument of, okay, well, I might want it legal, but I don't want it in my community. That's kind of where I am. Um... Okay, I can understand it not being necessarily prohibited by law, but as far as a local individual basis, I don't want it in my community. I think the community actually does have a vested interest in keeping it out. I don't necessarily think it should be banned on the state level, which is what the current law says, but I, I understand the merit of both sides of this argument. However, you have to remember that gambling ultimately is a stupid tax. And I do find it funny that Democrats that talk about, you know, basically every word out of their mouth is, we've got to help the children, we've got to help the poor. You know who gambling most affects? The poor and the children of the poor. 
That's who it affects the most. People will waste away what little money they have on gambling because it is an addiction, just like drugs, just like heroin or anything else. I have seen families destroyed by this. I'm thinking of one family in particular that the, the husband wound up taking every dime out of his wife's retirement and didn't know about it. And as you can imagine, that was not easy on their relationship when this happened. And I, I could provide story after story of anecdotal evidence. Gambling destroys people, and the house always wins. You ever wonder why there's these massive immaculate buildings? We had a Christmas party, the Cumulus Christmas Party, when I was with News Radio 1440 in Wind Creek Casino because they're a, a big sponsor. They, they had a lot of ads on the radio. And uh, it's incredibly immaculate. It's, it's very swanky. I actually got to go up into the penthouse. The food was amazing. All of that stuff. And, you know, I was thinking about the whole time I was there is, man, it's, it's really sad that so many dumb people spent so much money on this thing that they can afford things like this. You know, when you, you put up the billboards, when you're riding down the interstate, it's like, I won, you know, $10,000. like, yeah, but what they don't show is the 10,000 other people that lost most of their savings. That's what they don't show when they show that. And anytime you see all this giant advertising campaign and th th this giant immaculate building with all these bells and whistles and everything super nice, what you're not thinking about is how'd they get all that money? How did they get all that money? It's, it's not by paying out more than they took in. I can tell you that right now. And so because of that, it actually, the, the people that it targets the most are poor people that are just not smart with their money. And because of that, throw it all away on things like gambling, and it it does harm the communities around it. And because of that, I, I don't like it, and I don't like the idea of it being something that is implemented. But what's really interesting about that is, because I am a very libertarian-minded person, and I don't really like the idea of telling people what they can and can't do with their money, even if it is a drag on the community, I could see myself, if a certain gambling bill came about to where it was actually fair, if I were a representative, I could see myself supporting it. I really could. I think that there is a case to be made there that even though gambling is an incredibly stupid thing to do, the government's not there to protect you from your own stupidity. It's just not. You know, it's a really stupid thing to do to eat tons of sugar, but it's not the government's job to make sure you don't eat tons of sugar. And so I understand the libertarian argument here. I really do. And I think that there is a gambling bill in the state of Alabama that could be crafted, theoretically, I haven't seen it yet, that could be crafted that... I would support, but it hadn't shown up yet. And this latest iteration of it is just as bad. It might even be worse. So the current bill would not only be a problem, but it would actually create a state force monopoly. And unfortunately, this is what the, the past iterations of this bill have done over and over again. And it's one of the main reasons that I have a hard time bringing myself to support it because the amendment that they added to it, that they were trying to say, well, it, it it's, comes too close to creating a monopoly and it would basically be a state-enforced monopoly. So we don't want to do that. And then they added an amendment to open up more licenses and then everybody seemed to be okay with it. But here's the problem. The way that the bidding process was set up makes the amount of licenses that are available basically null and void. Because it, when it comes to competition, there is a threshold. There is a threshold that someone has to meet to get have to get over to be able to compete with the other players in the game. That's how this works, and it works that way with every 
single company, every single industry. But what we've done in the gambling industry is, based on this bill, we've made it very, very hard. That, that threshold of entry is incredibly high. And so it may not technically create a monopoly, but the end result is going to be a monopoly. When you have to have that much investment to get a minuscule level of profit, then it's, you're just not going to be able to find investors on that level. And that's one of the reasons I don't like the current bill. Because one thing that is the real kicker here is when it comes to these licenses, the cartels, the people that are already running at the, the victory lands of the world, the uh, Native American, uh, you know, the, the Wind Creek, uh, Porch Creek Indians, that kind of thing, all those people, those are the guys that are already in this game and they're the ones that would already have the power to make these bids. And since they have last bid, you know how an auction works, right? The guy who has the last bid basically wins if he wants to. No matter how high the bid process goes, when you get to the end of it, if they have last bid, they can just say, yeah, we're willing to fork over that amount of money to keep competition out of the market. There's literally no other industry where that is the, the case. I mean, if you were talking about cell phones, for example, you would put out a bill that said, okay, we're only going to have the four big cell phone companies, but we're going to open up these licenses to any other cell phone providers that want to come in. Oh, and by the way, Verizon gets the last bid. Um, yeah, that's, that's not a free market. Because then, even if the price is, is exorbitant, Verizon may look at their lawyers and go, hmm, yeah, kind of worth it to keep competition out of the market. If we only have to compete against the guys we currently have now, and we can actually guarantee ourselves to not have to compete against anybody else, if we've got the last bid, yeah, it may make sense for us to just buy out their license. And that's exactly what's going to happen with this bill if the gambling cartels get their way. They could also announce, and, and this would be another way to do it, they could also announce that they refuse to sell their current license making certain locations completely ineligible for competition. So let's say, for example, Victory Lane, at least based on my understanding of the bill and, and anybody in the state legislature, if there's something I'm missing here or mischaracterizing it, please, by all means, call in and, and I'll give you a time slot on the show. We can talk about it. But based on my understanding of it right now, one of the things that the current existing gambling organizations could do, let's, let's take Victory Lane at Shorter, they could say, we're going to continue to operate our facility in shorter, and that would be perfectly fine. The problem with that is if they announce that beforehand, it basically makes somebody who wants to open one up 20 miles from them or, or even two, you know, two miles, you know, next door. Couldn't do it. There would be no way for them to have a local competition. So not only does that knock out any potential local competition, so you couldn't have one casino on this side of the road and this other casino on the other side of the road, they wouldn't have any direct competition whatsoever. That's actually They're actually protected from local competition in that way. But the second thing, and this is actually more concerning, is if you're a guy that's living in, let's say, Tallahassee, and you want to open a gambling organization there, well, you can't. The land that you have already for that, completely worthless. So that would negate your desire to even bid for a license to even drive up the cost of Victory Lane just buying you out at the end anyway. And so not only does it keep out competition, it also makes the one thing that they have that kind of controls competition basically null and void because at least if you're in a certain part of the state, they can just hang on to their license and keep all the other competition in that part of the state out of the way. And so this is an incredibly flawed bill and 
the truth is I, I think that the people that are running gambling in the state right now, they know it, and that's the reason the bill is crafted the way it is, because they know that it it gives the illusion of allowing for competition without actually opening up the door for any competition to the already established people. And another thing is you have to already have current facilities if you want to bid for the license. In other words, you can't just say, yeah, I'd really like to build a casino out in this part of the state. I'm just going to go and bid for a license. Nope, you have to have the facility already. You have to think about this. And again, this is a way to keep out competition. What if they told you that for any other industry, let's say fast food, what if they said, um, yeah, you're only allowed to bid for a fast food license in the state of Alabama if you already have your restaurant built? Uh, no, thank you, because what happens then if I get outbid? I just sunk maybe a couple million dollars into a building that's now completely worthless? Bought all the machines, got staff ready, everything, and then I have to have all that before I even put in a bid? That's insane. Because then there's nobody new that will come up and say, yeah, I'd, I'd like to place a bid in because you have no idea whether you're going to get a license or not. You could be throwing money into the wind. This whole bill is designed to keep competition out. Everything in it is built around keeping the Porch Creek Indians and the people that already have established gambling locations in power and not let anybody else in. That's why this is a really, really bad bill. Again, I, like I said, I tend to be very libertarian on this kind of thing. I can, I can foresee a bill that was actually fair that I could see, this is a scary thought, but State Senator Caleb Cockwood voting for if I were in the Senate. But this ain't it, gang. All this is going to do is keep the people that are in power, empower them even more. That's all it would do. It would create a state-protected monopoly. And the gambling cartels, I guess set this whole thing out because they're fine with other people gambling their money and losing it so that they can make money. They're not okay with gambling their investment on the odds that there might be competition that shows up later. They want to keep everybody else out of the game. Because with them, they don't like gambling. They'd much rather it be a sure thing, and that's exactly what this bill is. It's not a gamble for them at all. It is a sure thing that they are going to come up, that their number is going to come up the way that they want them to. So that's the reason this is a terrible, terrible bill. Now, one other thing, I do want to transition from local stories here for just a second because I found this story really interesting. Pew Research actually did a survey and they found out that white liberals were more likely to have mental illness. I, I swear, this is a real thing. I didn't believe the headline when I saw it, but you can see it right here. This is an excerpt from a, uh, from, from, I'm sorry, this is a graph from the Pew Research Center. And so you can see there, these are the people that have ever had a healthcare provider told them that they had a mental health condition. So this is, this is not just an opinion, this is people that have actually been diagnosed. And you can see there that it's, it's certainly higher amongst younger people. And it's also, and we'll get into this a little bit later, it's also highest amongst females who happen to be represented in blue. Now, why the females are represented in blue and the males are represented by that, like, um, harsh pink... I, I don't know. Seems kind of like it should be the opposite to me, but whatever. But yeah, this is a, a trend that was taken uh, in 2020, and they just released the findings of it. And as you can see, over on the left side, white liberals have by far, it's not even close, the highest degree of mental health issues 
it's a little bit lower for white moderates and then it's lower still for white conservatives. In fact, if you're, um, if you're looking at all of that with white liberals, the average is about 42 with white moderates. It's about 26 and with white conservatives, it's about 21. Now I find that fascinating for a number of reasons. First of all, it's interesting to me that white conservatives are even lower than white moderates, but that both wind up in about the same ballpark, whereas when you have liberals, they have a ridiculous explosion of mental illness. Now, here's the thing. There are a lot of conservative talk shows that are going to look at this stat, look at the story, and they're going to use it as an opportunity to dunk on liberals, basically making the case that, see how screwed up liberalism is? It attracts the crazies. There's probably some measure of that. I'm not saying that there's not. But honestly, I think that that's, that's staying really shallow. If we really want to dig into why this is the case, I think it's the opposite. I think what they're doing there is committing a cause and effect fallacy. Are there crazy people that are attracted to leftism? Oh yeah, absolutely. Are there crazy people attracted to conservatism? Yeah, that's also true. We've, we've got our crazies too. And I would guess that liberalism probably lends itself to that a little bit more just because liberalism by definition is, is more about just do whatever you want. But I think that they're committing a cause and effect fallacy, at least for the most part when they say that. See, I don't think that white liberals have a higher rate of mental illness and, and mental issues because of that. I, I think it's the opposite. I think that being a leftist over time drags you down into mental illness. And, and follow my logic on this, because feel free to disagree, but I think that I'm onto something here. This would be a great opportunity to own the libs, but I, I just think that What's actually going on here is that what you're actually seeing is that their worldview creates mental illness. It lends itself to that. People that are engrossed in the ideas of secularism, of nihilism, of moral relativism, that those people are naturally vulnerable to developing mental illness. I think it's actually liberalism causing the mental illness, not the other way around. And my rationale for that basically goes to this. What is the most common theme of mental illness? What does virtually every mental illness from every side of the spectrum have in common? They have trouble perceiving reality. All of them. Whether you're talking about somebody that's delusional, whether you're talking about somebody that is paranoid, whether you're talking about somebody that even has obsessive compulsive disorder. They perceive things that are incorrect that are perfectly acceptable and fine. Schizophrenics have this issue. They're, they're seeing things that aren't actually there. People with multiple personalities, they think that they're more than one person. People with transgenderism, gender dysphoria, they think that they're a gender that they're not. Body dysphoria, they see themselves as being in the wrong body. All of these things are something that we attribute to the left. And the reason for that is because they cannot perceive reality. They're perceiving something that is either not there or might be there, but is exaggerated in their own mind, whether it's importance or scope or whatever else it may be. All of these things are issues with dealing with reality. And that's the credo of leftism. Nothing matters. Everything's relative. There is no truth. You are whatever you feel. Well, if your feelings are your only, only standard, then what if your feelings are wrong? What if your feelings are off? What if your feelings tell you to do something that wind up causing you pain in the end? You see, a, an objective moral truth 
would tell you that if you're doing something that is incorrect or causing you pain, you need to stop that even if it's uncomfortable for you at the time, or even if it's going to be very difficult for you at the time. Liberalism does none of that. It says you do you however you want without some kind of structure or an anchor to ground yourself in reality, you wind up with stuff like this. Let's take a look at it from a different angle. Let's say that you're a, a young liberal, because remember, the younger you were, the more likely you were to have these health issues, uh, the, these mental health issues, according to that chart. Let's say that you're looking at the world, you see how terrible it is, you see how awful people are to one another, and you think that this is the only thing that exists, that there is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no greater power to uh, present justice, to judge mankind, that the, the evil people that are getting away with it, they're just going to continue to get away with it, and their existence is, is actually significantly superior, because your only measure is how successful they are on this side of eternity, to the people that are actually doing the right thing and, and trying to make it in this world, and, and playing by the rules to do so. Well, don't you think that would drive you to anxiety? Don't you think that would drive you to believe that everything's pointless? Wouldn't that depress you? That's what's going on here. I don't think it's that those people are drawn to liberalism. I think it's that liberalism creates those problems. When you have a secular worldview that is devoid of all objective moral truth, then all you've got is trying to create a utopia. And once you realize that you as an individual... Because remember, the left does not value individualism. They think of everyone as a collective. When you see salvation as only coming through society and through government, and you see that that never comes, that it never delivers on its promise, and you start to worry that, oh, that might never happen because of all these evil conservatives that are constantly getting in the way of it. When you put your trust in that, of course it's going to cause anxiety. Of course it's going to cause that. You think that the world is going to, as AOC would say, is, like, literally going to end in, like, 12 years. Well, if you think that, then of course you're anxious. You think the whole world is going to be destroyed, and there's nothing awaiting you on the other side of eternity. Now, Christians believe the world could be destroyed at any second. But you know why we're not anxious about it? Because the ones that are Christians and are faithful know that they're, the, the end of that is going to be a place significantly better than this world. And so you understand, once you start peeling back the worldview how this could lead to all kinds of mental health issues and the reason that this is taking place because when you are a utopianist and you believe that what's supposed to happen to humanity is we're go eventually going to reach a utopia if we just have a, a communist world where everybody shares everything and there is no property and these, these evil, heartless Republicans are the ones poisoning that and there's nothing I can personally do to stop it. Well, of course you feel hopeless. There is no hope in that worldview. And so I think that that's the reason that this is happening. And because there is no higher power, ultimately everything is just meaningless. So let's say that you could create your utopia. Let's say that you actually accomplish your goal that all Republicans are, you know, murdered by Joseph Stalin or something like that. I'm, I'm giving, you know, being a little facetious, but I'm just saying that let's say that those evil Republicans that are stopping your perfect world from being created, let's say that they all went away and you could create your utopia. And let's just pretend that that would actually work even though every time it's ever been tried in human history, it wound up in just murdering lots of people for no reason. But let's pretend that it actually worked and you accomplished your utopia. So? I mean, gold star for you, I guess, but if life has no meaning, what was the point? 
even if you create your utopia, the universe is eventually going to end. All the people that live in it are eventually going to die. So what was the point? You see how undermining that biblical Judeo-Christian worldview creates a society and creates a mental state where people would be prone to these things? Even if they accomplish their goal, how would they even know that their goal is good and noble? If there is no objective truth, who's to say that their world is significantly better than another socialist, Hitler's worldview? Why is their world better than his world? Well, I mean, if there is no objective truth, how can you tell that? It's just a personal preference. And so, this is the issue that you run into if there is no moral truth. And another thing, too, that I, I think we need to understand about this when we look at the other side of this equation. God created us to be a certain way. He created us. In other words, He designed us specifically with a purpose and a way of life in mind for us. There is something that he perceived and he wanted for us to have. That's how we're made. Think about it like this. If I were to design a framing hammer, so you've got your, your handle, your grip, and then your hammer head, and on the other side, your, you know, your apparatus to pull up the nails. All of those things have a purpose, and it's designed that way for a reason. What if a person decided to drive a nail by grabbing the hammer head and trying to smash down on the nail with the handle? I don't know, it might drive it a little bit in, but even if it works, it's going to be super crooked and unreliable because you're using the tool in the way in which it was not designed. And that's what a lot of the people with the secular worldview are missing about God. God designed us to live a certain way, to have hope and purpose and love. And all of those things really only come through a relationship with Him. We can kind of get the job done, just like banging on a nail with the hammer handle can kind of get the job done to some degree, but it's not going to work the way that it's supposed to because you're not using the tool in the manner in which it was designed. And human beings are no different. God designed us with a specific purpose to do specific things in a specific way. And when we ignore his will and when we use ourselves and our souls in ways in which he did not intend, mental illness is the natural result among lots of other terrible things. And so ultimately, this is where we wind up. We are designed to love God and to be loved by him, and that gives our lives purpose and meaning. And devoid of that, we're going to develop mental health issues because we're not fulfilling that purpose. It's just as simple as that. And you know, I noticed in this chart that women are far more prone to this than men. Now, I don't know exactly why that is. So we're, we're diving off a little bit into speculation. And me being a non-woman, and no matter what people on the left may say, I, I'm not a woman, I've never been a woman, I can never become a woman, I will never, you know, no matter what my feelings are, I'll be a man and I'll, I will always be a man till the day I die. So the, the question becomes, why is it that women were more prone to this? I think it's because women need this more than men, because we are different, because we're not the same. Now, do all human beings need a loving God to protect them and look after them and to give their lives purpose? Yes, absolutely, that is true. Women don't need God more than men. I'm not saying that. So I want to clear that right now. 
But what I am saying is women do need the relationship aspect of it more than men. Because women have a greater need to be loved and to feel loved. And that's very difficult to do in a world that is cruel and heartless and doesn't care about them. And so I think that having that secular worldview, I mean, it just amps it up to 11 if that's the case. And here's another thing that I think is part of it as well. The victim mentality plays a large role in that too. Because if you constantly believe that every single thing about our world is the product of the patriarchy and that women are just being oppressed and, and demonized and all of this stuff, and, and, and basically all men exist just to keep women down, well, yeah, that's also going to cause some mental health issues. And so I think the combination of those two things are the reason that women have a bigger deal with this. And, and maybe some of my female viewers would love to weigh in on this and provide some insight that I just can't because I'm a dude. But that that's just tends to be where my thought process starts to try to explain exactly why women seem to be far more prone to that mental illness pro, uh, issue, especially when it comes to white liberals than men are. But here's the thing. I want everybody that's watching this that is not a liberal, that is a Christian conservative, or even somebody that's more of a platonic person. In other words, you're not necessarily religious, you're not really a Christian, but you understand objective moral truth because of the, the school of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and that line of thinking. Either one of those two camps that you happen to be in, I want you to understand we are not fighting a political ideology, and I think that this study is proof of that. We are literally fighting against madness and darkness. We are fighting against the opposite of the Enlightenment period. We are fighting to regress back into secularist and, and paganist ideas. That nothing matters, that we can't really control our lives, that it's all about the collective and the tribe and, and the society at large, and you as an individual don't have rights and don't matter, and it's all about power and control. That's what leftism is dragging people back into, whether it realizes it's doing it or not. The people that believe in moral truth, this is the fight that we are tasked with, guys. We're not just fighting a political ideology. We're not fighting to get to the next election and get people that we like in office and get policies that we like enacted. That's not what we're fighting here. This is a spiritual battle for the soul of this country. And we are fighting darkness and madness. And that chart just shows it is a visualization of exactly what's going on there. This is a sickness that is taking hold of us, an emptiness, a void that was created when we took God out of everything. And the only way to combat that is revival. That's it. Bringing God back into the sphere, giving people purpose and meaning and feeling like their lives actually matter to somebody. That's the only way we're going to come out on the other side of this. I hope we're up to the task. I really do. Because it is not going to be an easy battle. All right, I have Representative Mike Holmes coming up next. We will have him join the program to talk about some of the recent allegations against him. There's people that have called him in the Alabama media of being a racist because of the comment he made on the floor. So he's going to talk to us about that and talk to us a little bit more about some of the bills that we've been talking about. That's all coming up in just a second when we come back on Tactics. 
Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Welcome back into the program. As always, like and subscribe if you do want to help me fight the dark cyber overlords at YouTube. We definitely need your help with that, and the best way to do that is to like this video and subscribe to my channel. really messes with their heads when they see that there are people that are watching conservative content. Now, my next guest is someone who has been on the show a couple of times before. They are a representative from District 31 of the state of Alabama. Now, uh, for those of you who aren't aware, that's going to be the Watumka area. But without further ado, we'll go ahead and bring on to the program Mike Holmes. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Caleb. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, being generous with your time. And for those of, uh, those in the audience that may not know, there was a controversial, and, and I'm using air fingers quote there, uh, there was a controversial bill that, or sorry, a controversial conversation that happened between you and Representative John Roberts the other day. Uh, when you were discussing the monument protection bill that you put forward, and one of the things that he said was, some people don't want to go to Andrew Jackson high or Andrew Jackson School, and uh, talking about the Confederate general there, and then you said, well, some people may not want to go to Martin Luther King School, and so uh, this caused all kinds of upheaval and and people calling you racist from the al.com to alabama political reporter with josh moon and so i just wanted to ask you just sort of get your side of the story uh when you said other people don't want to go to martin luther king school what exactly did you mean by that what were you referencing well, there let me restage it uh, there's a lot of a lot of errors in there that we need to correct Number okay one, representative john rogers from birmingham not Roberts. Not I'm sorry. I was thinking of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Sorry, now, mental uh, error on my part. And the next, the next thing was this was a, he had been uh, John Rogers had been uh, supposedly in a uh, public hearing. You're asking questions of the of the bill sponsor, and of course I was standing at a podium, and uh, and he had been going on with uh, actually it was it was just a long, not a dialogue, just a long monologue of, of things that were wrong with our nation today, our state today, and it had nothing to do with the bill. It's mm -hmm. all about racism. And he, he made a statement that I've, I've, got, I've got this beautiful granddaughter. Mm -hmm. He says, what do you think? You, do you think I want my, my beautiful granddaughter? And I'm going to go slow here because I'm doing this from memory. You want my beautiful, beautiful granddaughter to go to school at a uh, Stonewall Jackson school. And, uh, of course, they just hung there, and he he filled the silence by saying, well, why don't, "Name it, name it, Martin Luther King, name it, um, John Lewis School." And uh, then I, I I would think about that, and then it was just silence. So, you know, when you're in a situation like that, the best thing to do is just remain silent, which I didn't. I let it 15 or 20 seconds go by, and I assumed he was done. So I asked him a question. It was not a statement; it was a question. I said, "Representative Rogers, could you could you agree that?" There are pre probably people out there that would not want their children to go to a Martin Luther King school. And he muttered, I don't know, you might be right. And that never got on any recording. 
That, right. So it, was, it was not a heated exchange. It was he and I, neither, neither one of us had lost our tempers. It was, it was just a simple question that I asked. Yeah, so and, and that's, that's the true side of it. I, I think that that really illustrates um, the danger of taking, an, and I think it's exactly 11 seconds if, I'm, if memory serves, taking an 11-second clip and making that the news story because based on, on what you're saying, it sounds like you and Rogers, who you know disagree on the bill, obviously, uh, yep. weren't arguing with one another. You weren't trying to talk over one another. And uh, in, in the clip, it sounds like you are. And so that really changes some of the context as well. And so just, I, can't, I guess what I want to dig into is, because there are people that, that may not want to go to a Martin Luther King school. I personally wouldn't have a problem with it. I don't know if you would either. And, and I want to make it clear that I would not either. I've got three right. wonderful grandchildren, and they've gone to all kinds of schools named after all races, everything else in their my oldest is 22 years old, so she's she's a senior in college. My next one is a senior in college, also, and they've been to you know schools that. And I would go to any name school. Martin Luther King is fine. That that, that doesn't matter to me, especially Martin Luther King, because you know I I highly admire that what he accomplished in his lifetime was amazing, uh, and I think he's probably one of the most venerated, uh, well-known. Uh, figures in the history of, of African-Americans and the black race. I, I just think he's a, he's a wonderful example. So I would, I would be happy to have my grandkids going to Martin Luther King school. So I, and I, that, and I think he, the, the press, uh, the, the, the critical press, the ones that are stretching this story, um, are trying to make it something that I was suggesting that there are people out there and they were thinking skinheads, you name all the radical hard right groups out there. Right. Militias and everybody else, and that wasn't that wasn't. It was a simple question. Would you agree that there are probably be people out there that wouldn't want to go to a Martin Luther King school either? Probably was a mistake, Caleb. Uh, probably should not have mentioned it at all, just mm. just on my silence. But you know, when you're in a in a battle like that, for I was on that podium for almost 90 minutes, standing in a podium. So you you know you, you I, I would be shocked if I didn't make some mistakes in that 90 minutes, and that was that was one. Uh, mm. But I. I Looking back, I don't, I don't know. It, it seemed like a fairly innocuous question to me. Well, and it sounds like even John Rogers felt like it was pretty innocuous based on his yeah. reaction. Uh, right. But but one thing that I was going to uh, point out, and one thing that I did point out, because for the audience who doesn't know, this is the first time you and I have talked about this. You're getting my live reaction on air. We haven't, like, you know, planned this out or anything. But, you know, days ago when all this, this story broke, I said, doesn't him saying the words, quote, other people imply that he's not one of the people that would feel this way? Well, you would think, yeah. yeah. And, and but, I mean, uh, unfortunately, it seems like this is just another case of the media and the left trying to uh, specifically zero in on and, and make something, make it into something racial that, that you didn't, you know, intend for that to be. Um, no, the, this bill has nothing to do with race. This, this bill is designed to pe protect all monuments. The Rosa Parks Monument, the Martin Luther King Monuments, it's designed mm -hmm. to protect all historic monuments. They are our history. If we don't preserve our history, you know the old saying, we're doomed to repeat it. If no, we don't learn from our history. Um, no, I agree, but uh, Josh Moon of AL Political Reporter, he was the one that actually released the, the sound clip that went viral. And mm -hmm. this was what he said of it. And I just kind of wanted to get your reaction to this. So okay. this is Josh Moon, quote, people like Mike Holmes don't care about Confederate monuments. They want them in high traffic areas where black citizens will see them. 
They want black kids to sit inside buildings named after slave owners because it's about power. And losing those statues or watching those schools' names be changed is a sign of lost power. So that's how he categorized it. I can't imagine anybody talking about Mike Holmes as being hungry for power. You know, I, they, I grudgingly agreed to serve when I was, the, my constituents demanded I run for office eight years ago, and it's been one of the roughest eight years of my life. I'm not, I'm not sorry I did, but I'm glad that this is my last year. I'm not going to run for re-election. It just takes too much of a toll on you. Um, I, I have no, I'm 79 years old. What kind of power do I want? I mean, I've, I've accomplished a lot in my lifetime. And I'm proud of it. And I, I, I'm not hungry for any kind of power. That's ridiculous. You know, and I can actually attest to that because I've known you for a number of years. And I can remember, I think one of the, maybe just the second or third interview I ever did with you, you were talking about how you had no intentions of running for office again. Now, eventually you did. But I've, you know, most of the time, politicians will leave that up in the air because they want to keep the suspense going. They want to keep the media continue to be interested. And uh, you were like, nope, don't want to run. Don't have any intention of going into office again. So you did the opposite. And, and you're right. It, it is kind of absurd that Josh Moon is trying to draw that to um, you having a, a thirst for power and, and wanting white people in general to be in power. I, I thought that that was a little bit silly myself. It, it really is. It really is. I have not taken Josh Moon seriously in the last, well, ever since he left the Montgomery Advertiser and kind of went out on his own. He just got, he just swung so far to the left that I couldn't believe anything he said. You know, I just thought, I don't need this anymore, so I haven't paid much attention to him. Well, it's funny because I, I, I'm kind of in the same boat with you. I haven't taken Josh Moon seriously in years, actually long before he left the Montgomery Advertiser. And well, the yeah, thing, he thing is, pretty radical before he left. You're right. He yeah, the, the thing is, though, he's a pretty decent uh, investigative journalist. It's just his opinion pieces when he starts talking about politics are awful. And now they put him at Alabama Political Reporter where that's all he does. So uh, they yep. took the, the worst part of Josh Moon. Um, but is. but I do want to dig into the actual issues and, and help people understand, because I don't want to spend all of our time here on that one quote. Uh, okay. So, so the bill that you guys were discussing, the the Confederate Monument Preservation Bill, what did those actually do? Uh, what what would change? Uh, what would this bill change about the the law as it stands right now? Well, the law that stands right now is a, a bill we passed in 2017 that was also called uh, the uh, Monuments Preservation Act of 2017, mm -hmm. uh, and it, it there was a big uh, floor battle and. Uh, they compromised the sponsor, Gerald Allen, and Senator Gerald Allen, compromised a lot right toward the end. It's like now, it was everything was critical. It was the last few days winding down. We've got to get it out now. And he made some compromises that weakened the bill dramatically. Yeah. We, we, I wound up voting for it in the House because it was the only game in town. And we were all very concerned at that point. Do you remember what was going on back in 2017? It was kind of the beginning of all these riots and burning our cities and and destroying monuments and that sort of thing was, was seen to be ramping up. We'd had some instances in Alabama, so we were all concerned about trying to make some take some action that might head off some of that. So it went ahead and passed, but it had it had some glaring weaknesses in it, and we started proving that over the next three years. Our own attorney general started pointing out those weaknesses to us, that his hands were tied in a lot of cases on prosecutions, on the fines were, were meaningless the way they were set up, and so on and so forth. So this bill sets out to try to strengthen and enhance that bill. And uh, also, uh, he, another mistake he made is he, he pretty much cut out any new monuments, anything under 40 years old. And to me, that's just wrong. We, we got meaningful mon monuments out there that are being built every day. Not as many as we used to, I admit, but um, there's still monuments going up. 
And a lot of those have to do with the civil rights struggle uh, that are still going up. And the Rosa Parks one there in Montgomery is a great example. Uh, that that uh, monument would not be protected under the 2017. Uh, this bill would protect that one. It would protect all monuments, uh, whether they're Catholic priests that they're tearing down in San Francisco to Thomas Jefferson and Washington, all the ones there after now uh, that are, you know, has nothing to do with the Civil War. These are all American Revolution uh, United States founders that we're tearing down their statues and a lot of uh, sainted uh, uh, individuals in the Catholic religion mm -hmm. that are they're their, their monuments and statues are being destroyed. So the idea is to protect all monuments that, that to, for, the, for the sake of the history, the, the meaningful history that we can learn from. And that's that's a simple version of it. And, and that's pretty much the, the, the adjustments we made mostly had to do with broadening the uh, the number of, of, of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, the, the broadening the number of, of counts or of not counts, but uh, kinds of, of crimes you could do from uh, raising or dis uh, disfiguring or all the way to destroying and removing. Uh, you had we had to add some more counts in there that that would broaden that, so that what, the attorney general would have a broader field that he could go after with charges, and um, and then when you do that, then you open up a, a can of worms where you got to define all that. And so you had, we added page after page of definitions of all those new words that we added, and and then the penalty phase went to a, a penalty phase that the, the twenty five thousand dollars fine, one time fine mm -hmm. for breaking this law. Um, in the new bill would be changed to $10,000 per day. Instead of a one-time fine, it would be $10,000 a day until the, until the damage is remedied. And so that, you know, if they don't, if they ignore you, the city of Birmingham ignores you, you know, 30 days later, they owe $300,000, not $25,000. So, so they, they eagerly paid the $25,000 and laughed at it. They thought it was just, it was nothing. It was piddling. Right. That, hap that happened in the, uh, the park where they had Confederate yeah. monuments that were disfigured. Right. Right, and uh, so they paid it easily. Uh, so anyway, that, that's that's the that's the whole 22 page page bill in a nutshell. And if you got questions, I'll be glad to go back and try to answer them. But. Yeah, I I did have one that I think could be a potential problem, and, and I mean, it, there may be a provision in the bill that I'm just not aware of that would resolve this. Like, let's say, obviously, Birmingham or Mobile or you know a larger city probably wouldn't have a problem with this, but. But let's say that this is a, a small town out in the middle of nowhere with a monument of some type, and they uh, have just random people, citizens in their, their city, uh, damage or disfigure a monument like what happened in Birmingham. And mm -hmm. uh, they leave it not because they want it gone, just because they don't have the money to repair it. And so now you're taking a town that's already having financial problems, and they continue to get $10,000 a day fines consecutively until they have repaired the statue. Is there some kind of measure in this bill that would prevent that from happening? Yeah, it's not, it's not aimed at the, at the uh, governing body of that small town. It's aimed at the perps, the perpetrators. So it's their, their job with their, even if it's a municipality, which is, if it's a country like you're talking about, it's probably a county, officials, the county sheriff, right. would be responsible for trying to protect that monument. But everybody understands that you can't protect everything. So that if you have vandals that come in in the middle of the night, you make a serious attempt to find and arrest those people and, and, and prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law on both criminal charges and on the uh, provisions of this bill. Okay, and, so, so and that... 
public uh, liens on those folks that have no money, so you, they would probably be meaningless, but they would certainly wind up in jail if, if they couldn't pay that $10,000 fine. Oh, okay. So it, it does aim the fine at the perpetrators, not the well, city itself. Not the city. Uh, in a case like now, if the city does it themselves, they have a city council meeting or they have a county commission meeting to decide, hey, we need to remove this Robert E. Lee statute. It's causing too many problems and unrest. We're having marches and everything else, so we're going to remove it. They make that decision, and yes, they are they are responsible to, to this law. Okay, so I wanted to ask you something else about not just your bill that would adjust this law, but the, the concept of the monument conservation, uh, or sorry, preservation in general, because I've been very open with my audience about this. I actually oppose that. I, I think that it was a bad law and it never should have been put into place, not because I disagree with what it's trying to do, because I actually think that monuments should be preserved, even if it happens to be monuments to things we, we don't agree with. Like you said at the beginning of this, if we don't learn our history, if we aren't able to preserve our history, we're doomed to repeat it. And so I actually really like the idea of the monument staying up. However, being the conservative kind of libertarian-minded guy that I am, uh, I, I like the idea of local control, and I don't like the idea of the state intervening and telling a local government what they can and can't do. And so as, as a fellow conservative, I mean, you're one of the most conservative members of the House based on your voting record. Uh, I just would like to you for a second to speak to that, and I mean, convince me if, if there's something that I'm missing on this bill. Well, it, the main thing is that the, there's no impetus for the, the local governments to do anything about it. Um, and they, it would sit there with you and I wishing that they would do something for 50 years and that they would never do anything. It's just too controversial. They're afraid of, they're afraid of the lawsuits. They're afraid of the cost. Uh, so it, I, my opinion is that they would do nothing. And so that's why I just said, okay, if they, if, if we're we're convinced they're not going to do anything, then uh, let's let's try to put some basic rules out there on a state law basis, and and that's debatable. I I, I hear your side, and I've heard it before. Uh, in fact, I met yesterday with one of the detractors that testified against the bill in the public hearing last week, and a good friend is a, is a, a very very powerful lobbyist and a good friend of mine, and I, he's one of the lobbyists that. You know this that there's lobbyists and then there's lobbyists. You wind up yeah. after a few years, you wind up depending on the lobbyists. But to do that, you have to learn the ones you can trust, and you know they're telling you the truth, and they won't. You know, they're just they're not they're not going to break their word. They, mm -hmm. You can depend on what they tell you. He's one of those guys. He's one of the ones I depend on. But he's he's like you. He he disagrees with that. He 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 would like to see it local control. And I told him the same thing yesterday that I told you today is that I, I, I would love that if they would step forward and do that. I have my doubts that they would. They're showing no signs of it. Well, you know, I got to be honest. Uh, I I still disagree with you on that. I, I think that ultimately um, it should be something that's handled by the municipalities. And, and just because we would wish them to do something else does not, you know, mean that we should come in and, and overtake their liberty to decide what, what happens in their own city. But, you know, I, I don't want to spend all our time on that and, um you know, I, I think, like you said, there are honest people that can disagree on this, and, and we do want the same goal, which is the preservation of history. I just... And, and I think that's yeah. what's important to take out of your mind, mind of your conversation. You and I have talked before, and I think we knew up front that we were not going to agree 100% of the time. But right. I've always said if I can agree with anybody on 80% of the time, I better count them as an ally. Right, the uh, the Ronald Reagan rule, as it were. Yeah. Um, but, you know, since, we, since we've got you here anyway... Uh, I was going to ask you about uh, some of the more controversial bills. I know that you and I talked briefly about the the gambling bill, and, and so I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that and and where it, you know its status as a bill. If you think it's actually going to become law, and then you know what your take on it is personally. 
Okay, I'm, and I'm going to have to go fast because we don't have much time left. But uh, <laughs> that's true. Sorry about that. It, it, uh, it's a comp it's a complex bill. We when we first came down, we were shocked in the House when they uh, messaged us from the Senate that they had passed this and and sent it down to transact into our hopper. Uh, there was nothing available that night on Thursday. We couldn't get anything on Allison online. Uh, all we got was a, you know, one-page talking points of here's here's what we passed, and and it had a it was pretty broad, and so we got a pretty good idea from there. And the biggest idea we got out of all my contacts in the House, including the Speaker, was that this is so complex. How can we get our arms around this in the time frame we're going to have to get this in front of the House and get it passed, or get it even considered in the seven or eight days we got left? And um, that was that was the biggest concern up front. Now they've there's been a lot of effort now on everybody's part, including mine, to start getting you know you know we're going to be faced with it one way or the other. We're going to we're going to run out of time and do our, give it our best shot to try to cover it. But I think there is agreement in the House that we are not going to rush into anything. This is too complex and there's too many huge mistakes that can be made with this many variables and this many players in the picture. It's just it's just it's too too big and too dangerous to hurry. So I think that's the thing. We're going to, you're going to see a very deliberate consideration, and if we run out of time, so be it. If it's got to be considered now, then it's up to the governor to call a special session and come back and, and try to try to uh, get this uh, considered and voted on. But, well, in, um, in my experience, when somebody does try to pass something really big and really complicated and they try to do so very quickly, that's a sign there's a lot of bad stuff in it. Well, <laughs> it generally turns out that way. You're absolutely right, Caleb. It generally turns out that way when that happens. And it happens too often in both our national government as well as our state and county and local governments. Mm -hmm. But uh, if anybody, you know, has liked what they heard and is interested in helping you, supporting you, uh, where would they go to do that? Uh, I, you know, I, I think the local uh, grassroots organizations that have worked with ever since they talked me into running for office of mm -hmm. There is no more We Think the Tea Party, but there's still a really strong base, uh, still in touch with Becky Garrettson uh, with uh, Eagle Forum now. Mm -hmm. She still heads up a uh, grassroots organization that uh, that that has a has a loud megaphone, loud microphone. So if they want to help the grassroots effort, uh, I think that would be a contact. I don't have their email or anything else, but I think. I think if you just go to eagleforum.com, she'll come up as a state director for them. Yeah, I believe it's Eagle Forum Alabama is their website, uh, eagleforumalabama.com or .org, one of those two. Okay. Uh, that would that would be one. Uh, and they'll, they'll believe me, they're digesting this bill at the same time. She's called me several times in the last few days, to, you know, asking questions about it, and they're digesting it as we are. Mm -hmm. I know enough to honestly to answer a lot of questions at this point. I suspect I'm going to get a earful of it in the next two weeks. But, <laughs> Probably but, so. I, I don't know enough to answer a lot of questions right now. It's it's a, basically it includes all the existing players now, which would be the Porch Creeks at their existing locations, at three locations, and then uh, Victory Land in Macon County, uh, Green Track in Green County. There's one a dog track uh, in Mobile that, that, by the way, the Porch Creeks own, I believe. Mm -hmm. So that would become another location there. All those would be included. Uh, in this, and the plus they would add, they're adding in two more locations for the Porch Creeks, and all this going to the Porch Creeks is in return for them signing a compact with the governor to bring them into the fold to pay the same taxes on their revenues that all the other players pay, and that number is 20% of net revenue, and that's a, I'm, I'm a uh, business executive by career, 
And that's that's not a term we use. That we use net income before taxes, mm. which is very clear. You know exactly. What, but net um, net income proceeds is not is not uh, clear to me. But I I've learned after asking a few questions from people in the know, essentially what that means is the difference between the prize prizes they're giving out the cash that they're giving out compared to the amount they took in. That difference would be what they'd be paying that 20% tax on. So it's all it's it's sort of like a weird net income number if you're an accountant uh, and that's that's what they'd be paying the 20 percent on and so that's that's a big step in the right direction with the port streaks in my opinion but it gives them a, a lot more locations than anybody and they're going to they're going to be the ones with the power because they're sitting on a pile of money they're investing money all over the nation because they got so much they're making so much here in, in alabama they've invested in pennsylvania has been their biggest one and it's it's huge that things up over a billion dollars of revenue now in pennsylvania and it's got everything, table games, sports betting, the whole nine yards. And that's the other thing that, that it's added into this bill. All these same players can offer sports betting. Well, uh, and, and that's one thing that just in my experience covering these bills, and there's a gambling bill that comes out pretty much every year now, or it has for the past three or four years that I can remember. The thing that always makes me skeptical of it is the, the Band of Porch Creek Indians, it seems like they always become the blessed and highly favored party in all of this. They wind up getting the most locations, and they create um, some of the bills that have been suggested give them a full monopoly. This one, I think, yeah. gives them not quite a monopoly, but it makes them by far the, the ones that have the biggest stake in it, and it makes them the largest players and makes it very difficult for anybody uh, to come up through the market through competition. And so... Uh, it reeks of, of right. not being free market. One, one thing that, that I, I neglected to tell you is that uh, there, is, there is a provision in there for more locations uh, besides the three I mentioned, the, the Green Track, Victory Land. There is, I think, for three more operations. And the, na the name of the area, I think one of them was in the Wiregrass. Mm -hmm. one, of, one of them was in the um, Rocket, Rocket City area. And I can't remember where the third one was. But there was there more than those are going up for bid. That's okay. strange bidding system it would take me two hours to try to explain it to you but it, it's a it's, it's a bidding process that those would be sold those licenses would be sold for so it, it it does with that move that does make it a little more competitive for the pci but there's no question who's the 800 pound gorilla in the room right no question and that important pci is it and i and i can say this and i, and I know you're running out of time for your time slot caleb but uh the, um if we from what I know now, I'm going to make a statement that I probably shouldn't make, but, but if we pass this as monstrous as this is and this power shifting that this will be and, and the impact it's going to have on government, and I mean that through government control mm -hmm. by contributions. And by the way, there is a, in the, up in the uh, enabling legislation, there is a uh, uh, forbidding language to give to any political party, period. Mm -hmm. None of these players can give any money. Well, you and I know how that works. I mean, there's so right. many ways to go around for uh, five layers of corporations, but the money gets there anyway. They don't, it doesn't matter how many times you say they can't do that. So what the statement I was about to make that I'll probably be hung with 10 years from now is that if we pass this, and you've been in Alabama a long time and you love Alabama. Yes, sir. You're not going to recognize Alabama in 10 years if we pass this. You will not recognize it. It will look like Mississippi from, from state line to state line. Well, and I think that's what people need to consider when they are considering whether they should vote for or against this is is the, you know, looking at a 10-year window down the line and what this bill would do to it, I think is a pretty good standard to have. And, and that's probably a pretty good standard with any bill is to look at how it's going to affect the government in that time. 
Uh, I would like to make a quick observation uh, okay. about you, uh, just kind of speaking directly to the audience here for a second. I want to point out that when I asked the guy, you know, what his website was or where he could go to support him financially or whatever, he turned it into a policy discussion and couldn't even produce his own website or a place that you could go to fund him. And this is the guy that Josh Moon says is so evil and power hungry. <laughs> Like, yeah. Have you ever met a politician that didn't have a place that you could go and donate to their campaign fund? Well, I'm sorry, I closed that website down. That's just <laughs> I, two years ago, I, we got you know, I knew I wasn't going to run again. I said, this is foolish to me to keep this open. I, you know, right. everybody, everybody's got my cell phone number in this district. Anybody that wants it has it. So if they need to talk to me, they know how, how to get me. I may not be able to answer their call, but I will certainly return their calls if they leave a message. So. Uh, yeah, that's the way I communicate, and uh, and and with conversations like this, and and as many conversations as I can have with individual constituents. I have another thing I need to give a plug to. I have an advisory district advisory board with ten volunteers that are a cross section of my constituents, from bankers to lawyers to to Indian chiefs, just about. I mean, there, there's uh, farmers, uh, the whole nine yards, teachers. Got two of those. Uh, just uh, great people. I'd say half of them are retired, so they're. They're, they're wise, wisdom, uh, experienced, and very patriotic and want to do whatever they can to help. These people meet with me at least quarterly, sometimes more if we've got big decisions to make, giving me the feedback of my constituents. That is invaluable to me, those meetings and, and those people. And, and when something comes up quickly, they call an individual. Mike, I know we're not going to have a meeting, but I need to tell you this, 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 and this. And the, the, that feedback is just invaluable. I, I don't know how anybody runs a, a representative district like this without some, a group like that to feedback to. Well, I tell you, it sounds like you got a good crew there. And as the Bible says, there is wisdom in a multitude of counsel. So, it, you know, that's, that's probably something that more elected representatives need to have uh, behind them. But uh, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you coming on and, and clearing this up for us because, um, you know, I've gotten to the point in my career where I can look at a story from the mainstream media, and even if they have a deceptively uh, sounding soundbite, I, I can tell when they're making something up out of nothing. So thank you for clearing up that little controversy there with us. I'm glad to. I, 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 so far, I've heard virtually nothing from it. So uh, there must be a lot of people out there like you that know the source. Yeah, well, I appreciate it, Representative Holmes, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk to you soon. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity, Caleb. Yes, sir. Always a pleasure. That is Representative Mike Holmes of the 31st District of Alabama. We certainly are appreciative of him coming onto the program, and, and we always appreciate it when representatives do that and want to talk to you, the people. So we will go ahead and take a quick break. We'll be right back on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. Now you've messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, I'm looking forward to this one. The reigning champion, that's right, you may recall at the end of the year, we appointed someone the stupidest person of the year for the year 2020, and it was Chris Cuomo. So we're going to give him precedence here. We do have a double dose of the Daily Dose of Stupid, but our Daily Dose of Stupid for today, for right now, Chris Cuomo, the reigning champion, the stupidest person of the year 2020. So Chris Cuomo, you know what? I'm not even going to intro it. 
I'm just going to let you watch it cold. This happened on his program just a couple of nights ago. Watch. You know what the answer is? You really do. You don't like it. I don't like it. It scares me. Shootings, gun laws, access to weapons. Oh, you, I know when they'll change. Your kids start getting killed. White people's kids start getting killed. Smoking that doobie that's actually legal probably in your state now, but they don't know what it was. And then the kid runs and the pop, 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 pop. Cop was justified. Why'd you run? Oh, he had a baseball game tonight. Huh? The white kid. Oh, big family. That house over there. Those start piling up. What is going on with these police? Oh, what? Maybe we shouldn't even have police. That kind of mania, that kind of madness, that'll be you. That'll be the majority because it's your people. See, now black people start getting all guns, forming militias, protect themselves. Can't trust deep state. You'll see a wave of change in access and accountability. We saw it in the 60s. That's when it changes because that's when it's you. Yes, I think everyone's IQ just dropped a little bit watching that, but here, here's my rule of thumb, and it's a very simple one, but it works. If you are not sure if something is racist, all you need to do is change the race of the person, or ch- change the race in the sentence and see if it sounds racist then. So when he says, white kids, oh, white parents' kids start getting killed, white people's kids start getting killed by cops, then stuff will start changing. Um, what if he said the same thing about black people? I believe Chris Cuomo would not have a job the next day if that had happened. But if you're saying it about white people, it's perfectly acceptable. So as insulting and ridiculous as what Chris Cuomo just said was, it's rooted in something that he doesn't understand because he doesn't think that way. People do not see themselves as members of tribes by and large. The woke left does. In fact, they see nothing but tribes. To them, everything comes through the lens of tribes. Whether it's rich versus poor, whether it's black versus white, whether it's Republican versus Democrat, they they see every aspect of the world as tribe struggle. It's just how they think. But the average person just doesn't see themselves that way. They think of themselves as individuals. They don't think, well, I can't possibly relate to George Floyd because he's a black person. No, I I think the fact that we saw the massive outcry of people, including conservatives, talking about how wrong George Floyd's death was, whether or not they agreed with Derek Chauvin's defense team or whatever, or thought that they might have had some good points, ultimately, at the end of the day, they said that that shouldn't have happened. Floyd did not act the way that he should have as an officer of the law. The vast majority of the population, with a handful of very rare exceptions, agreed with this that even if they thought it wasn't as bad as some people were making it out to be, that it's still really bad and they would never want a cop like Derek Chauvin handling them or somebody that they knew. And they were able to say that after seeing his reaction to George Floyd. In other words, they did see themselves in George Floyd. Well, how can that happen if they're not black? Because the average person doesn't think of themselves that way. Not every aspect of their life is driven by race. They don't see every single interaction with every single human being that they run into in their entire lives as being 
filtered through a racial lens. That's just not how most people think of themselves. Chris Cuomo doesn't understand this because he thinks everything has to be filtered through the lens of tribe and he thinks everybody only sees tribe the way he does. And because of that, it's like, oh yeah, once white kids start dying, you're going to start you know, getting upset and seeing that and that's going to change your opinions. Seeing black kids if it killed if it's unjustified, that would be cause for, look at Ahmed Aubrey. Now those were not police officers, but pretty much everybody that I know of, liberal, conservative, whatever, they looked at the Ahmed Aubrey case, it's like, no, that guy, that guy was killed unjustifiably. See, what Chris Cuomo does not understand is that you can see yourself through the eyes of another, uh, somebody of a, another tribe than you, because if you see yourself as a child of God, then you don't really see yourself as all that different than anybody else. We're all created in God's image. We're all sinful people that are in need of salvation. And because of that, you really just don't see a ton of differences. I mean, th there's some, sure. There's some cultural differences. I think everybody acknowledges that. But at the end of the day, people are just people. And Chris Cuomo doesn't understand that because it doesn't suit his political philosophy. But it did sound oddly similar to something else that happened this week with Nancy Pelosi. Because if you listen, what he's actually saying there is that, well, once white kids start dying, once police officers start killing white people's kids, then we're going to get the politics and, and the political uh, desires met. We're going to get the policies that we as leftists favor. We're going to start getting those things through, like gun control, like police reform, etc., etc., and it sounded oddly familiar to something else, somebody important, namely the Speaker of the House, the person that, might I remind you, is third in line, which is terrifying on a number of levels, for the presidency actually said this week after the verdict in the George Floyd case came down, Nancy Pelosi. So again, thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice. Yeah. George Floyd didn't sacrifice his self for justice. You see, sacrificing your life is something that is done voluntarily. When Jesus sacrificed his life for us, he had the option. When the people showed up in the Garden of Gethsemane to take him, he went willingly. When they tried to accuse him and, and convict him, he didn't defend himself. When he went to the cross, we were told later in Scripture that he could have called ten legions of angels to come and free him, and he chose not to do it. That's a sacrifice. That's him willingly laying his life down. That ain't what happened with George Floyd. Whether or not it affected the political change that you were wanting or not, George Floyd did not make a conscious decision of, yeah, I really like the Democrats' policies, and so I'm just going to decide to die right now. In fact, isn't that the whole point of the Derek Chauvin case? Is that that wasn't George Floyd's, co uh, Floyd's choice? He didn't choose that? His life was taken from him? Now, you could make the case, I guess, and, and fr frankly, the defense made a lot of points that would compel you to believe this, that George Floyd, regardless of whether Chauvin's behavior was justified or not, probably would have died of asphyxiation from the drugs that he was on regardless of what Derek Chauvin did, and, and that certainly is plausible, but even then, he wasn't intentionally killing himself for that to take place. So, just on its surface, Nancy Pelosi's claim is completely stupid, but in both of these cases, Chris Cuomo and Nancy Pelosi, what I want you to notice, the 
theme that runs through both of those, the thing that is central to both of the things that they just said is essentially people are just pawns for political purposes. They're not humans. They're not individuals. They're not valuable to us as people. What they are valuable to us as is to get our policies through. That's really what we want at the end of the day. And Chris Cuomo's assertion is, yeah, if some white kids have to die at the hands of police for us to get the gun control that we want and to get the police reform that we want and that kind of thing, yeah, then it'll start changing. Yeah, that's that's how Chris Cuomo presented it. And Nancy Pelosi, the same thing. You know, I, I saw somebody on the internet and it was so appropriate. I would play it, but there's a uh, copyright infringement I'd have to worry about with DreamWorks Studios. Uh, the scene from Shrek, the first Shrek with Lord Farquaad, they, they had Nancy Pelosi, and then right after they played Farquaad, who uh, is really funny because he's all wearing all red, just like Pelosi is in that video, and he goes, some of you may die, but it's a sacrifice I am willing to make. John Lithgow with the uh, character Lord Farquaad there, and he just plays that so perfectly. And and that's correct. That's that's how Democrats see it. Look, if if some babies have to die in the womb for us to get our political point across, well, you know, that's fine with us. If If some people have to die... Uh, from sheer poverty because they can't afford a heating bill anymore to get the Green New Deal through, well, that's, you know, that's just a sacrifice we're willing to make. It's never a sacrifice on their part. But they're perfectly fine with other people sacrificing themselves. And by sacrificing, they mean, you know, in the case of other socialists like Stalin and Hitler and Mao and so on and so forth, um, you know, sacrifices have to be made for the greater good. And that usually ends in some kind of uh, mass killing. You know, we've only killed, what, 20, 30 million people in the past century because of socialism. And apparently that's something that the modern democratic socialists are fine with today. But that's, I mean, that, that was basically Chris Cuomo and Nancy Pelosi saying exactly the same thing, right? It's like, these people are just dying for our political cause and, and we're fine with that. Um, I don't think that they would have articulated it that way, but they need to understand that that's what it sounds like. But nonetheless, I wanted to uh, talk specifically about what Chris Cuomo was saying about changing their political motivations. Here's the thing. Let's say that this happened. Now, I don't have any kids, so I can't use myself. But I do have a father, and I am a child of him. And that's somebody with pretty strong political beliefs. He's been on the show before. You might know him as John from Millbrook. So if, let's say, exactly what happened here, and, and not even exactly what happened, but the perception of what happened happened, let's say that I had a run-in with a police officer, and the police officer, completely unjustified and provoked, just killed me for no reason. Would my dad be really upset at that police officer? Yep. Would my dad be in favor of some kind of localized police reform? Probably. I think he would probably take that on a case-by-case basis. Do you th- do I think that my dad would go after that cop's conviction? Sure. Would it change his stance on gun control? Nope. Not even in the slightest. Would it make him believe that all cops are evil? No. Would it create a idea in him that all cops everywhere are systematically flawed and untrustworthy? Nope, wouldn't do that either. Again, because it goes back to the core thing that Chris Cuomo was talking about. My father, just like other conservatives do not see people as collectives. He doesn't assume because a cop here did something really stupid and bad, even something as horrible as murdering somebody, as a problem that is systematic throughout the entirety of the system. 
He doesn't think of people that way. He doesn't lump them into groups and judge everybody based on a bad experience he had with one of them. That is prejudice. That's the definition of prejudice. They have a bad experience with one person, and so you judge other people based on something that they did not do. And that's exactly what most people in BLM and the left and Antifa do with police officers. They assume that they're all bad because there might be some of them out there that are bad. And in Chauvin's case, yeah, it looks like he was a bad cop. That doesn't mean they're all terrible. That doesn't mean most of them are terrible. It just means that occasionally there are bad cops, just like there are bad people in any other profession. But ultimately, that's the thing, is Chris Cuomo and Nancy Pelosi think in tribalist terms. Conservatives don't. And so this idea that if that happened to white people, that all of a sudden you'd see some, some big sweeping federal change, no, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't, because we don't think of ourselves as part of a tribe. If you think of people as individuals, then you don't have that problem. And that's something that Chris Cuomo does not understand. And on top of that, the, the most insulting thing to me in that entire clip is where he talks about, oh yeah, black people starting to get guns and, and arming up and forming militias. You can't trust the deep state. Oh yeah, then some gun control laws would change. Bullcrap. No, it wouldn't. It simply wouldn't. I have, sp I have personally helped black people pick out guns. I don't have a problem with black people having guns. I don't care. You remember there was a segment, and I thought it was so hilarious. I want to say it was uh, NBC Nightly News. They did a, a short little two or three minute thing on a gay gun club in New York uh, because of Trump. They, they felt that they were going to be bullied and that there were going to be people, which is hilarious because Trump is literally the very first president, and I know conservatives hate when I point this out, but he's the first president in American history to go into office supporting gay marriage. And yet somehow they felt as though Trump was a, a threat to them and that there would be people bullying them and trying to hurt them because of this. Now, I think that the reason that that, that gay gun club started buying a bunch of guns and going to the range and practicing and learning gun safety, I thought their reason for doing so was a little silly. But was I against them having guns? No. Any group of people, if they feel as though they are being persecuted, whether that perception is true or not, ought to have guns. Period. End of discussion. If we have a rape culture on campuses, which, I mean, numerically is just false, even though I do believe it's false, it would still be a better thing for women to be armed. In fact, the number one determining factor between a rape not being completed, an attempted rape not being completed, or being completed is whether or not the woman had a gun on her. It's the number one thing. That goes from a success rate of 50% chance of the rape being completed to less than one. It is the number one determining factor. So if we feel that women are being persecuted and victimized, arm the women. If gay people are being victimized, arm the gays. If trans disagree with their lifestyle, but if they feel that they're being persecuted against, arm the trannies. Arm whoever. And the same is true for black people. One of the very first things the NRA did, one of the reasons that the organization was established is to preserve the gun rights of black Americans that were being unfairly persecuted from having firearms by the Klan and Democrats that were in control of Southern states at the time. That was one of the very first things they did as an organization. The Second Amendment is not for people of one race or another race. More black people being armed, I don't care if they're Democrats, still a good thing for me. Because the more gun owners there are in this country, the more of them we have, the better it is for gun rights. The more people are willing to understand, first of all, 
our background check is is already pretty good. They will understand all of the the tenets of the Second Amendment that they have a right to to keep and bear those arms, that they have a right to carry. They'll understand the laws better. And so that is only a win for me. I want more black people to be armed. I don't care if they're Republican, Democrat, whatever. Doesn't bother me. Arm them all. That's my stance. I know Chris Cuomo, that would blow his mind that I'm in favor of that, but I really am. The Second Amendment does not know any race. It is for everybody, regardless of race. But more than that, what Chris Cuomo's assertion there is, even though it's, it's you know, his hypothetical is stupid, but it's also not even based on truth because he is assuming there that white people are not being killed by police officers. Now, this is not to say anything to justified or unjustified. I'm not talking about that because, you know, there's a lot of people that are killed by cops every year. And the vast majority of them, justified killings. Those people should have been killed because they presented a threat to themselves, a threat to the, or, sorry, a threat to others or threats to the officers. And because of that, they did need to be taken out. There is a small minority of unjustified cop killing, killings, but the idea that police officers are not killing white people or white people's kids is simply not true. Just out of a cursory search, these are just some of the cases that I found about this. You can see there, ABC News, an officer shot and killed 16-year-old Isaiah Moretta Golding, a teenager that ran away from police and investigating a shooting death that day earlier, April 2017. By the way, white kid. You'll see down there the New York Daily News. Uh, what's strange at the time in Fresno and for America is that the victim, 19-year-old Dylan Noble, wasn't a black man. United States News World and Report. The family of a South Carolina teen, Zachary Hammond, who was fatally shot in the parking lot of a Hardee's restaurant by a police officer last year, has settled a lawsuit against police and the city of Seneca for $2.15 The Washington Times. This is one in our own backyard. Gilbert Collar, who, by the way, was from Wetumpka, this area. A white, unarmed 18-year-old under the influence of drugs was shot and killed on October 6, 2012. Officer Tervis Austin, who is black, in Mobile, Alabama. So, we have several instances that made news of white kids being shot by police officers. In one case, it was a black police officer. Do you know any of those people's names? I'm guessing you probably didn't. Now remember, I do news for a living, and I didn't know any of their names either. One of them was from this area. I could drive to his house in 20 minutes. I had no idea who he was. You know why? Because like I said at the beginning of this, we do not see ourselves as tribalists. When we see a black police officer shooting an unarmed white teenager... We may assert that that's bad or that the police officer did so in error. I really don't know. I haven't seen the details of the case. Might have been a justified killing. I really have no idea. But the point is, I didn't assume that that person was in the wrong because the police officer was black and the kid was white. I also didn't assume that they were wrong because the police officer was armed and the kid was unarmed. Still might have been justified. But at the end of the day, the point is, this didn't become a national news story because... People do not see themselves as tribalists most of the time. The reason that it is being driven by the mainstream media and the left is primarily because they think they can use it to get their political desires met. And frankly, they've had some success in doing so. But on top of that, 
let's look at some of the uh, statistics overall, because, you know, we could compare notes on anecdotal evidence all day, but at the end of the day, the question, the bigger question, even though this is really kind of already debunked what Chris Cuomo was saying and the fact that no white kids ever get killed, that it, once, once it ha starts happening to white people, then all of a sudden things will change. Well, that's ridiculous because that assumes that it, it never happens to white people. We've seen anecdotal evidence of that happening, but what is it like on the massive scale? Well, let's take a look at this from Statista. So these are from uh, police fatalities from shootings from 2017, 18, 19, 20, and some partial data from 2021. But of course, that year isn't ended yet, so we don't have full data on that. Huh. Seems like there's about twice as many white people that get shot and killed by police every year than black people. Well, that's funny, because if you were listening to Chris Cuomo, you would assume that that never happens. This is an anomaly, and once that did start happening, then all of a sudden you would start agreeing with all of his kooky liberal policies. Here's the problem with that, though. I've already proven Chris Cuomo's point completely wrong. There's, it's not based in fact whatsoever. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. No thinking person can look at those statistics and go like, you know what, Chris Cuomo's got a good point. Because there's at least twice as many white people killed every year by police officers than black people. I've completely destroyed that argument. However, I'm going to go deeper anyway because I'm a huge nerd. Sorry, it's just the way that it is. You knew what you were getting into when you started watching this show. So let's dig a little deeper. Because I've just proven Chris Cuomo's argument, but somebody could see this segment and go, yeah, Caleb, that is true, and you're right on that, and yeah, Chris Cuomo's an idiot. I mean, we all knew that. But, just for the sake of argument, let's bring this up. Outside of Chris Cuomo's point, you didn't account for population. Yeah, it's true that twice as many white people get killed as black people. However, white people do make up about 70% of the population, whereas black people only make up about 13%. So if you adjust for population, it seems as though black people are getting killed at a much higher rate than white people. Okay, thank you for being a critical thinker if you did think that when you saw that. Bravo, well done. Because most people just see raw numbers and assume that that's all there is and don't take into account things like population. However, that's an unfair rubric, and I'm going to explain why. We should not be judging based on raw population. We should be judging based on how often they have encounters with the police officers. Because that would assume that every race commits crimes at the same rate, and that is simply not true. We know this from crime statistics. So what I did was, and I think that this is going to be really beneficial, I took a look at the crime rates by... FBI statistics from the same years that that Statista graphic looked at, 2017, 2018, and 2019. Now, you'll see there, from the year 2017, uh, violent crimes, white versus black, you'll see the raw numbers there, and then you'll see the percentages. White people did commit about 68.9% of the crimes there, but for black Americans, it was 27, so more than double their population. The same thing was true for 2018 and 2019. There's a little variation in the numbers here and there, but by and large, you're seeing something floating around the 27 number when they make up only 13% of the population. And so it is absolutely a fact that black people on average are committing far more crimes. And, and these are specifically violent crimes. These aren't even just like, you know, petty uh, crimes or speeding tickets. No, no, no. 
that's specifically looking at violent crimes and property crimes. And so the situations in which police officers might have to use violent force in order to stop somebody. And so we're looking at something that is extremely relevant to the kind of situation that we're talking about. And if you take that into consideration, then you would naturally assume that police officers have far more interactions with black people outsized based on their population. And because of that, they might have more tendency to get into a situation where this could take place. So what I did was, to try to make the comparison fair, instead of instead of comparing it to raw population figures, I compared the number of fatal police shootings to violent crimes as a percentage, and here are the results of my findings with that. So you can see here, and I have separated it by race, you can see that white fatalities in these three-year spans, 2017 to 2019, there were 1,226 fatalities at the hands of police officers that were white in this three-year span. Their violent crimes were 15.68 million, which accounts for about 69.1%. And that means the rate of being shot by a police officer is approximately 0.0078. Now, one takeaway you should have from this before we even get into the black statistics is Holy cow, even if you commit violent crimes, your chances of being killed by a police officer are practically nothing. Which is a pretty good sign that police are good people that don't want to kill people and are doing their jobs. In the vast, overwhelming majority of cases, that is true. When you've only got a 0.0078% of dying at the hands of a police officer while in the process of committing a violent crime, that means our police are keeping a lot of people alive, even if they are committing crimes. Now let's look at that compared to statistics with blacks. Their fatalities are 667. Their violent crimes, 6.15 million, so they account for about 27.2% of all violent crimes, which makes their rate of being shot 0.0108% which is slightly higher than the rate for whites. That is a difference, for those of you that are keeping up at home, of 0.003%. We are literally talking about a difference that is so minuscule, it doesn't even count for three one-thousandths of a percent. That's how tiny the difference is. When you're talking about rates of crimes committed by black people and white people versus their fatalities in being shot by police officers. Now, to be fair, it is slightly higher if you are black, but it's so infinitesimally small you can't even tell a difference. It's not even a whole percentage difference. It's not a tenth of a percent. It's not a hundredth of a percent. It is three one thousandths of a percent. These are infinitesimally small differences. And what that should tell you is that when it comes to policing, cops are pretty good at keeping it even. And by the way, this is not my first time doing this. For those of you that have been a fan of the show for a really long time, you know that I started about five years ago, and I ran the numbers for the years that we had available back then. I think the most recent one I did was either 2014 or 2015. When I ran the numbers then, the rate was about the same amount of difference, but the difference is whites were actually the ones that were slightly more likely to be killed by police officers. And so we're talking about minuscule differences, virtually nothing. It's so small, it's hard to even observe it in terms of statistics. 
And so because of that, that's a pretty conclusive case that this whole thing is manufactured. See, here's what actually happened here. Chris Cuomo fell victim to his own ivory tower. He fell victim to his own network's media bias. He's convinced, oh, well, I'm not seeing all these stories on CNN of unarmed white kids being shot by cops. It must not be happening. Uh, no, it's actually happening about twice as often as it is for black people. It's just not making national news because it doesn't fit your political narrative. And that is why Chris Cuomo doesn't know that it's happening. He's completely unaware of it. He has his head so far up his ivory tower. So you thought I was going to say something else. He has his head so far up his ivory tower that he doesn't even know that that's taking place. And so he thinks he's making a good point. But if he actually did any digging into the statistics, he'd find out that we're being shot and killed by police officers, whether justified or unjustified, at roughly the same rate that black people are. There's really very no, there's really no difference in those two things. So, for the second Daily Dose of Stupid, it again goes back to the same discussion that we've been having. Patricia Cullors, who is the... Cullors or Cullors? I'm not sure how to say her name. I, I think it's Cullors. But she is one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. You may remember her from a clip we did in a Daily Dose of Stupid a while back where she was talking about how she was a trained Marxist. This is something that she constantly brags about. She, she makes no bones about it. She is a Marxist. She is a socialist. And that's her goal with the Black Lives Matter movement. It is a movement that is rooted in socialism. Well, it turns out that USA Today, uh, in, in reaction to the New York Post, did some fact-checking on this and apparently found that, that it actually is true. This is the USA Today fact-checker on some real estate that she's been buying. You know, for a Marxist, she seems to have pretty nice digs. So this is USA Today fact-checker. Her Los Angeles properties cost $510,000. Another Los Angeles home ran her $590,000. A suburban Atlanta property was purchased for $415,000. And then there was another one that they couldn't confirm, but it's another one in LA from Topanga Canyon that apparently cost $1.4 million. Now, here's the thing. USA Today said that they could not confirm it, but in an interview later that day, she did confirm that she owned that property. So you are looking at right there roughly $3 million just in real estate and four homes all across the United States for this person. But she's a Marxist. Isn't she supposed to not like property and not like having nice things for yourself? I mean, you, you would think that based on her stated ideology. Well, apparently there were people that were pointing this out. This is an interview that was done with Mark Lamont Hill. He used to be with CNN. Um, he's on the Black News Network, Black News Channel now, I think is what it's called, which uh, is funny because if there was a white news channel, you, people would lose their crap. But nonetheless, this is an interview she did with him trying to explain all of the various extravagant homes that she owns. Organizers should get paid for the work that they do. They should get paid a living wage. Um, and the fact that the right-wing media is trying to um, create hysteria around um, my spending is uh, frankly racist and sexist. Just as predictable as the tide, the Black Lives Matter activist, the second that anybody is even mildly critical of her, oh, it's, it's because they're racist and sexist. 
well, how is it racist? Well, I don't know, but it's racist and sexist. I can tell you that right now. They're saying mean things about me. The only reason that someone would ever do that is because they're racist and sexist. It's an interesting thing that people who have just sort of engrossed themselves into this victimized mentality, they can attribute literally any personal flaw to other people just being racist and sexist against me. It's an incredible way to live. It really is. I don't, I don't understand the, uh, the cognitive dissonance and the sort of mental gymnastics you have to go through to actually believe this. But apparently she believes that anybody calling her out on this is racist and sexist. But I can prove that that's not the case pretty easily. You may recall that I and conservatives all over the country were doing exactly the same thing to Bernie Sanders. Because Bernie Sanders, who claims to be a socialist and a disciple of Karl Marx and, and doesn't believe in property and nobody should be allowed to have property and it's, it's immoral for the top 1% to have so much wealth. That guy evidently has three houses, one that's in uh, Martha's Vineyard, which is like the most expensive place to live. Well, not the most expensive, but one of the most expensive places to live in the country. And he's got two homes in Vermont. We called him out for that. And uh, Bernie ain't black, nor is he a lady. He's Jewish. I mean, ethnically, he's not religiously Jewish. But that's about it. And I've done the same thing with Nancy Pelosi who is a white lady when she opens up her giant tub of designer ice cream. I mean, the Trump campaign literally made an ad out of that. This isn't something that conservatives are doing because she's a black woman. They're doing it because you're inconsistent with your belief system. You claim to be a Marxist who believes that having property and living extravagantly is immoral and wrong. Unless you do it. That's the hypocrisy that we're calling out. And even though I'm not a big fan of Mark Lamont Hill, to his credit, he did actually point this out and ask her about it. And so this is his follow-up question, which, uh, you know, not really politically on board with him, but Mark Lamont Hill actually doing the right thing here. There's mm -hmm. also a critique, though, from the left that would say, um, if you are a trained Marxist, if we're talking about a certain kind of radical politic, that extravagant homes of any sort or multiple properties of any sort is itself contradictory to the ideology that you hold. And so it's not about having money per se, but that it's about, uh, or about property per se, but it's about there being a potential contradiction between your express politics and your lived practice. Sure, and I think that is a critique that is um, wanting. And I say that because um, the, the, the way that I live my life is in direct support to Black people, including my Black family members, uh, first and foremost. And uh, for so many Black folks who are able to invest um, in themselves and their community, they choose to invest in their family. And that's what I've chosen to do. Um, I have a child. I have a brother that has severe mental illness that I take care of. Um, I support my mother, um, and I support many other family members of mine. And so I see um, uh, my money as not my own. <laughs> I see it as um, my family's money as well. <laughs> if, if I were writing a parody, making fun of Marxism, and I were the one scripting this entire interview, I could not have come up with an answer that, that was that rich and funny. I couldn't have done it. If I were scripting the whole thing just to make fun of and point out the flaws in Marxism, 
I couldn't have come up with an answer better than the one that she just gave. Look, as I said from the onset of this, no one has a problem with you being successful. Nobody has a problem with you using money to help your family. That's what a good, responsible person should do. The issue is that your stated value system decries that. The problem isn't you having lots of houses. It's the same thing with Bernie Sanders. I've had people say, yeah, but you, you know, you were a supporter of Donald Trump and, and he's incredibly rich and has all these properties. Yeah, but Donald Trump's not talking about how evil it is to do that. In fact, he was weirdly kind of proud of it. But the same standard applies here. When Bernie, Sa the reason that I pick on Bernie Sanders for living extravagantly is because of his stated value system, that it's wrong for rich people to exist, that there should not be a country that even exists where that you can have millionaires and billionaires. You'll notice now he only criticizes billionaires because now he is a millionaire, and so he's moved from millionaires and billionaires to just billionaires. Just the billionaires are the bad ones. But anyway, the same thing is going on here. We're not pointing out that having property is wrong. We're not saying that it's wrong to have multiple houses or to, to live extravagantly if, if you've made your money honestly. What we are pointing out is that you say that you're a Marxist that believes in all these things well, in, until you're the one that has to do it. This goes back to what I've said for a very long time. Socialism is for the people, not the socialists. Joseph Stalin didn't starve, but several million of his people did. Uh, we saw in, in Venezuela earlier this year that Maduro, he's there eating empanadas while the average person in his country has lost 28 pounds because they're starving to death. Yeah, he hadn't missed a meal. Have you noticed he's not lost any weight? There's a reason for that. The Marxists at the top always do this. A lot of people will point out that this is inconsistent, but the truth is it actually is kind of consistent because this is what Marxists always do, but she's trying to make the point that, no, no, there are black people in my family. And so because of that, when I'm supporting them, I really am giving the money to black people, which is such a load of crap. I, I mean, that would be like, that would be like a, a, a super rich evangelist minister like Joel Osteen, um, who's a fraud on a number of levels, but I won't get into that today. I'm just using him as, a, as an example. When you had somebody, if you had somebody like Joel Osteen saying, look, I, when, when people criticize me for living extravagantly as a minister, I'm just helping out poor people in my family. Um, no, that's not how that works. Helping out people in your family, I mean, Jesus even says that in the gospel. If you give good things to your children, even, even, even evil people know how to do that. That's not a testament to your moral fortitude. That's just silly. And so she says, oh, I, I'm supporting black people with my money. I, I see that as my family's money. I'm giving it to them. Um, does your family really have to live in a $1.4 million mansion? I mean, it seems to me you could get by with a $100,000 house pretty easily. Or buy lots of different houses for them that uh, I, I, don't, I don't think any family needs a $1.4 million house. And here's the thing, like I said don't have a problem with somebody living in a big extravagant house, as long as they're not telling me that it's wrong to do that. <laughs> That's the disconnect here. But ultimately, it is something that is a aversion to her own stated values. And if you don't believe me, we'll go straight to Karl Marx himself, the Communist Manifesto, Pillar 1. The abolition of private property in land and application of all rents and land to the public purpose. Hmm, kind of sounds like a Marxist would know that, and a Marxist would be against having extravagant private property 
and instead having it just belong to the community at large. That seems to be the principle that Marx espouses. Let's look at pillar three, the abolition of all rights of inheritance. Wait a second. You can't pass things on to your family in Marxism. You're not supposed to create family wealth. You're supposed to abolish all inheritance that once you die, it just goes with you. You're not supposed to support your family. But I thought she was a trained Marxist. Oh, but it's for my family. Okay, I'm sorry, but as a Marxist, that doesn't work. You can't do that as a Marxist. You're not supposed to provide for your family. The state is supposed to provide for everybody, including your family. You're not in charge of them. The state is. And so you're not supposed to spend extravagantly on them. You're not supposed to be able to pass things down to them. That's something for the people at the top only. Marxism decries that. And furthermore, not only Marx, but her own organization says that that's a bad thing. And you don't have to take my word for it. Let's just look at the Black Lives Matter website. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Huh. Well, that's bizarre. Shouldn't Patricia Cullors just open her house to everybody in the community? Yeah, random black guy that's a heroin addict off to the side here, you can come in. Oh wait, she couldn't really do that because all of her homes are in super nice gated white communities. Which again, don't have a problem with, but it seems kind of contradictory to her stated value system. And you know, her own organization's website. According to them, you're not supposed to support your family. It's supposed to be a village, a community. You're all supposed to take care of kids and raise them together. You're not supposed to have family responsibilities and duties. And, and by the way, you're also supposed to provide for other people in your community. You think Patricia Cullors has random homeless people coming into her house anytime that she wants? I rather doubt it. This woman is a fraud and hypocrite and should be called out for it. And thankfully she has been. And when she came to defend herself, she just made it worse. But ultimately, as I said, this is not a contradiction because this is what Marxists do. Rules for thee, but not for me. You're not allowed to have nice things and allowed to have property. That's for the enlightened despots at the top of the food chain. You unwashed little people. You're the ones that aren't supposed to have property. It's greedy for you to have a house that's larger than you actually need. It's greedy for you to want to raise your own children or to provide for your family because that goes against Marxism. But when I do it, it's perfectly okay. This is who Marxists are. Make no mistake. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Today's Chaplain's Report is probably going to be a pretty short one because I do think the message contained within this passage of Scripture is profound. But like a lot of profound messages, it's pretty simple. So let's go ahead and look at 1 Samuel 22, verses 6 through 7. Now, to just give a little bit of setup, you remember that when we last left David, he's fleeing from King Saul, and he goes to the temple, 
to take of the showbread because he and his men are hungry. And then he picks up the sword of Goliath along the way, but then he runs away from that. Well, this is right after that, and this is how Saul reacts to this whole thing. So let's go ahead and look in chapter 22, verses 6 through 8. Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was at Gibeah, sitting under the terrace tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing in front of him. Saul said to his servants who were standing in front of him, Hear now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse really give you all your fields and vineyards? Will he make all you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For all of you have conspired against me so that there is no one who informs me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you who cares about me or informs me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. So a couple things are very obvious. First of all, Saul's paranoia, as we've talked about many times in this series on the book of 1 Samuel, is absolutely out of control. He's convinced that everybody's against him, that nobody likes him, that nobody's actually trying to help him, that uh, David's trying to ambush him, which is bizarre because David's never done anything except exactly what Saul asked him to do. And yet he is convinced that David is trying to take his throne from him. He is absolutely convinced there is not no doubt in his mind that everyone, you heard him say it just there, is conspiring against him. And you notice that the Bible is very careful to say he was standing in front of all of his men and he had his spear in hand. What does that imply? I think what it means is he was not doing this on a friendly basis. He's threatening people. He's got his spear up. He's pointing it around at people. He's making a point that he believes that everybody here is conspiring against him and he's about to take vengeance on them. He's trying to scare them into giving up information on David. Now, maybe they have it, maybe they don't. And and actually, we do find out that there's a man there that does know a little bit of something of, of where David went, but he wasn't like hiding it or anything, at least not so far as we know. But he's so paranoid, he's now threatening the people that he's supposed to trust the most, the ones that are going to be fighting for him. Look, David still had no intention of harming him whatsoever. We, we know this based on events that happened afterward where David had every opportunity to take Saul's life and would not do it. It, it. He had at least two opportunities to kill Saul then and there and have it done with, and he said, no, I will not raise my hand against God's anointed. I'm not going to do it. But Saul doesn't see that. Saul doesn't see it because he is so driven by his thirst for power and his desire to hang on to what he's got that he refuses to see any other point of view. And he's so wrapped up in this that he's threatening to kill people that are there trying to help him. I I don't know how else to describe it, but it's kind of like we were talking about with the mental illnesses earlier in this episode. He is so far removed from God now, removed from hope, removed from seeing things in a different light, seeing things through God's eyes, seeing things through what's best for the country, what's best for him spiritually, what's best for his own family. He is so driven by just hanging on to his temporary crown that he's willing to sacrifice anything, even the trust of his own men that are fighting next to him, in order to get what he wants. And that is sad. That is really sad that Saul has found himself in this position. You know, Saul could have been the king that defeated the Philistines. He kind of had them on the run there for several years. 
Saul could have been the man that united all of Israel under one crown. And to a degree, he kind of did that, but he drove them apart again when his son took the throne where he was, and then David started to rule in Hebron and then in Jerusalem. And so he wasn't able to unite his country. He wasn't able to take on the Philistines. And that's really unfortunate because that's who he could have been, and I think that's who God intended for him to be. He knew that he wasn't going to do that eventually because God knows all things. But that's who Saul had the potential to be, and he threw it away because he refused to do what God asked him to do. And I want, like I said, this is very simple, but it's profound. What could we be if we did what God asked? How many times has our defiance of the Lord caused us to do something that we shouldn't have done, which may have resulted in us throwing away an opportunity? What could we be if we just did what God asked us to do? Because Saul could have been arguably the greatest king in Israel's history, but instead that went to David. Because David did what God asked, Saul didn't. Think about this. Saul may have been the one through whom Christ came. Because if God sees all things, he could have told Benjamin, not Judah, that his descendants would be the one through whom the entire world would be blessed. Saul could have been the one through whom the lineage of Christ came if he had just done what God asked him to do, and he wouldn't do it. What could you be if you did what God asked you to do? What can we now still be? What do we still have the potential to be if we follow God's will and His plan for our life? I, I don't know the answer, but I can guarantee you, looking back at it, you're either going to be a David or you're going to be a Saul. You're either going to be someone that looks back on your life and goes, yeah, I made some mistakes, but I did mostly what God asked me to do, and, and I was very blessed for it. Or you're going to look back at your life and see something like Saul. is like, man, so much wasted potential. God made all of us to be His servants all of us, to do good things. Saul was no exception to that. So the next time we, we have to make a decision, a moral decision, as to what we're going to do, let's just remember that. And think to ourselves that if we do what God wants here, even if it's not easy, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it means we're going to be alienated from our social group or whatever else it may be, the reward is going to outweigh whatever it is we're giving up in the moment. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.